0: Welcome to the Brown County Hour.
1: Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown,
2: where the plum
3: purple haze,
1: the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers,
3: inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers.
4: It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana
3: sit for a spell and hear the music
4: the tall tales
2: true stories
1: and current goings-on
3: brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter
1: and swim buck naked in summer welcome to episode 49 of the brown county hour this is dave seastrom
0: and carrie ray along with the rest of the crew. This month, we're featuring the first of a two-part interview with John Whitcomb that features his music. Next month, we'll talk about his father, former Governor Ed Whitcomb.
1: Vera Grubbs brings us an interview with artist Joe Henderson. Dave Bartlett shares some information about the Community Resource Center, and Carrie Ray has another For a Song.
0: We have another edition of Jeff Tryon's My Brown County. Rick Fettig waxes poetically, and we have an essay from Dave Seastrom. We begin our show
2: with the John Whitcomb interview, and we'll hear his original song, Picture on the Mantle. We'll also listen to Vera Grubbs' interview with local artist Joe Henderson.
4: This is Rick Fettig with the Brown County Hour, and I'm here with my good friend John Whitcomb. Howdy, Rick. Welcome. We're glad to have you. He just played a couple tunes live here, and Sam Heron joined him on the mandolin. So that's kind of a special treat that we weren't really expecting. And for probably as long as I've known you, I remember you playing music, even at the Red Lion. You were playing bass <laughs> yeah. with some group and stuff. You went to the Guitar Institute of Technology when you were pretty young, didn't you?
5: Yeah. Well, no, I was no, I was actually a little bit older. That at that time the Pretty much the typical age was nineteen to twenty, and I was I was old at twenty seven. Oh
4: my gosh! Yeah, yeah.
5: <laughs> but I'd already been out on the road doing road gigs. I just didn't know what I was doing, right. so I wanted to go find out what I was doing, uh-huh. <laughs> learn what all these notes were and all these. Yeah, but that was in California, wasn't it? It was in Hollywood, California. Yeah, yeah back in the glorious days of of heavy metal, but there was also a lot of jazz and blues, taught and country, great two or three great country instructors yeah. are as well. So,
4: And then it was back to Seymour.
5: <laughs> yeah, more or less, in a roundabout way.
4: So that's where we were both raised, pretty much. Yeah. So you are a teacher. You teach guitar. I do. Right? And I've seen you play several other
5: instruments. You don't really play a lot around here do you unfortunately no but that's i think going to change a little bit um what was taking m- most of my time was a corporate band that i played with based out of indy called jane bond and the pink martinis oh. and we did corporate events um anything from uh team green or the indy 500 to large wedding receptions and whatever if 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 corporate had the money we were there. <laughs> yeah.
6: <laughs> yeah. And so
5: and that was a nice I love that job. It's it's kinda of slowing down a little bit. Um I hope it's not an indicator as to where the economy's going because last time it slowed down this bad we were on the verge of it. Well, but you're still with them. them? Yeah, wow. still with them. Wow. And a great group. Uh, been with them twenty years. You
4: were also a musical director at a couple of the churches in Bloomington. Mm-hmm
5: the choice of the material which um i do like the contemporary praise and worship music but i'm you can't beat those beautiful hymns those mm-hmm. old wonderful hymns um some of them are a little corny but yeah. if if you could you know spend a lot of time with them and you can put a little contemporary flair to them and they're just wonderful to play but
4: yeah and the, a lot of harmonies going a lot in, of like, harmonies going yeah. kind of stuff which yeah. makes it real pretty doesn't it yeah uh, what kind of influences have you had growing up?
5: Probably, my, I have to say, my biggest influence were my four older sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Trish, Ann, Shelley, and Alice. Because uh-huh. you know, well, Trish and Ann were, my two older sisters were almost a, another family, because there was a little distance between them and, and us three. Uh-huh. So um, they were, you know, the music they were into, then they brought home. You know, when I was just a little guy was the really cool stuff. I remember Anne as a matter of fact, uh, when uh, Wish You Were Here, Pink Floyd Wish You Were Here mm-hmm. came out, W N A P yeah. was having a contest and if you came downtown in a pink T shirt or pink pants or whatever, something pink <laughs> on you got a free album. I remember she put that on and I was like Hey, this is different. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, but none of them play. They none just, of them played, they, but they just brought all this great music into yeah. the house, and and it was wonderful.
4: Yeah, I had a cousin like that. Yeah, and we'd go over and dance in the living room
5: <laughs> oh yeah 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 um and the beatles of course you know trish and ann with that album for meet the beatles and now my parents uh, were my dad was really into music he was actually played trumpet in uh the uh, marching 100 over at iu and he loved harmonica music he's a big uh harmonica cats uh-huh. fan oh yeah and uh, Tony Bennett. And, uh, and they loved Perkins,
4: all that. Carl Perkins, probably.
5: Yeah, a little bit of that. And uh, He's actually a huge Bob Dylan fan. Uh, which was kind of surprises a lot of people. <laughs> but it's that deep thinking that Bob did.
4: Yeah. Well, the two songs you played for us, you wrote. Mm-hmm. So I assume the other two we haven't heard yet because right. you're still working on them and they'll be done soon. Right. Uh, you wrote them. Right, yeah. So do you have an approach for writing? Lyrics first? Chords first? Right now I don't. Um,
5: Just whatever. Sometimes it's just a word or a thought that a word provokes. Or sometimes it's a really cool thing that I hear that somebody's done and I like to do a variation of. I used to force myself to write a song every day. Mm. And when I was learning to write, because I was really terrible at first. And, I mean, you might be the judge whether I've gotten any better or not. But... (laughs) It was the early songs were terrible, you know. Yeah. But I just kept on and kept on and then I realized, gee, people have written books about how to write a song, so I picked up a couple of those and mm-hmm. and then met some songwriters, went to some songwriter places where they hung out and and just started getting ideas and seeing what worked and what didn't work and Well, I have a funny twist on the conversation. Okay.
4: Here. <laughs> All right. Um, we both grew up in Seymour. Yeah. And your dad was Governor Edgar D. Whitcomb. Yes, sir. And um, an acquaintance of ours, John Mellencamp. Yes. Rented your dad's <laughs> summer home. Is that yes. Kind of true? Yes. And that was about, you may remember, I was trying to remember, but I think like Pat Benatar did Hurt So Good. Yeah. And bought that from him. And that was the first thing that he ever got on the radio. Right. right. And then he got a deal and. Right, actually got some money and could afford to rent your house. <laughs>
5: right, right, right. Yeah, those were great times. Those were at uh, magical times. Well, because I was like fifteen, uh-huh. you know, sixteen when all that was going on. That summer that they were, he and Phil were there, and then you know Tony DeFreeze oh, yes. from Main Man was popping in and out, and 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 Jamie and and. Uh, it was just, God, I was like starstruck. You know, here were all these killer musicians showing up. And then when they rehearsed out at the little cabin out by the Roxy, mm. it was big enough for them and some equipment and maybe two other people. Yeah. And,
4: and the I've, Roxy was a skating rink yeah, on the edge the Roxy of town. Yeah, skating rink, yeah. I don't know if, at that time, John's uncle owned that mm-hmm. for a period of time. Mm-hmm. So, well... Got anything else you want to throw in there and tell us about yourself? He's also the Village Painter. I'm the Village Painter, yes. So if you need anything around Nashville <laughs> here painted, do you have a contact, like an email or
5: Facebook? Um, Facebook, or you can find the Village Painter on Facebook. Okay. And you can see my work that I've done there. Okay. The past 20 years I've been been painting the Village. and that, uh, My wife, I married uh, Terry, and she wanted to go back to school right away. And I was still playing music full time. I had a nice job at the Turner's Athenaeum and uh, playing in the pit uh, uh, for um, Broadway shows that they mm. were doing up there. But financially, it was a little rough with three kids. So I thought, well, she wanted to go back to school full time, and get her master's. So I thought we, we don't need to work too and try yeah. to get a master's yeah. degree. So. And she's a great lady. Uh, I've she's wonderful. A number she's, of times. We just celebrated our twentieth anniversary. Oh, in February, really?
4: Yeah. The girls, I don't know, but Zach plays, your son. Zach, yeah. What's he up to these days?
5: Zach uh, is a policy analyst for the New Zealand government. You know, here's more history going. Uh, In 2011, he was in northeast Japan teaching English and was right in the middle of that tsunami that happened. And we didn't know if he lived or died for 36 hours. And he'd been dating this uh, wonderful young lady from New Zealand and they decided if they could survive a tsunami, that they <laughs> they, they could, could survive it, marriage. They could survive marriage. <laughs> That's right. And so down to Wellington, New Zealand, they went. And uh, they, got, they got blessed with a great job down there. And they got a little four-year-old boy, and he's, they're happy. So That's good. Every Friday, Skype time.
4: Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, John, it's been
5: wonderful having you. Hey, thank you.
4: And uh, we enjoyed your music. And, uh,
5: well, I appreciate you having we'll
4: me. We'll get them on the air for you. Wonderful. So, thank you.
5: Thank you.
3: This is Vera Grubbs with the Brown County Hour Mm -hmm. and I'm here to talk to Joe Henderson. Joe has been in Brown County a long time that I know and we'll let him tell his story. How are you today, Joe?
7: I'm doing fine.
3: You're a long-time woodworker, I understand. How long have you worked at this craft and how did you become involved in this medium?
7: Well, I came to Brown County about uh, 1978 and I didn't really have a background at that time with woodworking, although I, I'd seen my dad build houses as we were growing up. He built the houses we lived in, so I you know, helped him pulling nails and toting boards around. So my woodworking end of it was pretty much on the construction level, and when I came to Brown County, that's kind of what I fell into was the construction world being a carpenter and helping it was mostly in the construction area and i guess it just has evolved over the years into smaller and smaller projects and and a little more finished work all the time and now i do mostly things that we take to art shows i have a son helping me uh, we've been making a lot of birds here lately but i did construction for a, for a number of years 10 or 15 years and then gradually in my spare time would make bowls and any kind of uh, carving sort of woodworking that i was uh, that interested me uh, but we built our own houses too and that we've lived in the last pretty much most all the work in the houses we live in but mostly I like the smaller and smaller woodworking things that have a sculptural element to them three-dimensional sort of uh, woodworking interests interest me the most but with an eye still on making a living at it so we you know i don't do a lot of real detailed and highly in, time-consuming work. Most of our work is kind of oriented towards the marketplace that uh, where we can pay the bills too. As I go on and get older, I, I kind of look forward to slowing down and doing a little more, a little finer work maybe. And But every year is a little different. I'm just glad to be able to keep going at it.
3: You mentioned coming to Brown County. Where
7: did you hail from? was born in Newcastle, Indiana and lived there up until high school age, then lived up in northern Ohio for a while and then moved to chicago suburb tried that for a year and definitely didn't like that <laughs> then visited a brother down in texas and worked down there and kind of the drafting in the oil field industry and i wore that out pretty quick too <laughs> about, a, about a year down there and that's when i came to brown county and i pretty much instantly decided this place I wanted to be with the wood and i guess got started really with wood, wood, woodworking besides the construction just cut firewood and that really opened up the you know the medium of, of wood to me seeing what all the wood looked like inside and all the different good kind of woods that grew in brown county
3: so you use the word instantly took to brown mm-hmm. county how does brown county influence your craft
7: since i work mostly with you know all the native woods here as my primary material and we live out in the middle of the woods here so we don't have to go too far to find wood and we look mostly for you know real interesting woods kind of gnarly grains and mostly trees are dead already we like cherry and spalted maple it's a fungus that grows in maple it makes some real interesting patterns uh, but, uh yeah it's really the wood that uh that sells our work i think and, and my work
3: and you mentioned that you've started out mostly as a home builder. Mm-hmm. Was there any training or mm-hmm. education that stirred you toward fine art woodworking?
7: Pretty much just by way of library and books and I guess people say self-taught but really no formal training. Just uh, did a lot of reading and I had great interest in seeing what people did with, uh, with wood and could do and so I just read everything I could find and saw everything on, on television that I could and talked to people. And, but yeah, nothing formal. Oh, I did have a year of college, up in Northern Indiana engineering type college. I guess I didn't uh, wasn't uh, too inclined that direction either. So I, but no, no formal woodworking training. Or I guess maybe I did have a little influence. My parents were both uh, artists. My dad was a commercial artist. That's a big influence. Da- yeah, that's definitely influence. <laughs> <laughs> he was a commercial artist for the Dana Corporation. He did more two-dimensional uh, advertising art, uh, and then my mom was a portrait artist some oil portraits and a lot of pastel portraits. But faces and portraits was her main main interest, I guess. So that I'm sure that influenced uh, our decision too. We don't do maybe 10 or 12 shows a year.
3: You talked about birds. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other pieces that mm-hmm. you work with?
7: I've done clocks for uh, quite a few years. A little kind of free-form clocks, I can say, three-dimensional, sculptural. You know, two-piece clocks, I put a little insert, clock insert in, so the wood's the main focus, but I think people like the idea of being a functional sculpture. So I still do a few bowls, done a lot of ladles through the years. I think bowls was one of the first things I did, and I still come back to that.
3: Can you elaborate on what inspires you?
7: Anymore, just, we do a lot of animal figures, animal world. We started doing buffalo and fetishes.
3: Do you have a website or a Facebook page that Uh, you'd like us
7: to know? (laughs) No, no, I haven't uh, haven't done that. No, I'd rather be in the shop than on the computer.
3: Where in Nashville can one find you?
7: Uh, In Nashville, we are at the Spears Pottery Gallery, or in Bloomington at the By Hand Gallery.
5: All right, this is a song called Picture on the Mantle, and uh, it was written for my dad and his newlywed bride. Uh, He was 95 and she was 87 when they got married. And it's a sweet little story. Uh, They actually met at a computer class. (laughs) My dad was like, still wanted to get his mind going, wrapped around a computer. He loved that kind of stuff. And I was at one of his cabins down on the river and there was this lovely picture of Evelyn when she was about 22 years old on the mantle of the fireplace. And he and one of his buddies were out walking through the woods, and I was there with my guitar, and I picked it up, and about two and a half minutes later, this, with a little minor tweaking here and there, this the song was, was born, so this is called Picture on the Mantle. One, two, three, four.
3: identification.
1: Support for WFHB in the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org.
4: In this section, we begin with a discussion about the Community Resource Center with David Bartlett. And Jeff Tryon brings us a history of Brown County newspapers.
6: My name is David Bartlett, the director of the Brown County Career Resource Center. Today, I wanna talk about the programs and services that we offer at the CRC. But first, I want to thank the Brown County community for their support over the last 14 years of the CRC's existence. That support has taken many forms, including students coming in to take advantage of the adult education classes and services offered at the CRC. Chances are you or someone you know has gone to Ivy Tech, completed a high school equivalency, been trained as an electrician or health aide, or found employment through the CRC and for that we are grateful. To businesses that have requested and hired employees through the CRC, places like Brown County Health and Living Community, Wheeler Electric, Southside Electric, 7P Solutions, Home Helpers, and a host of others. For the many organizations who stepped up to say that the CRC was too important to do without once our original funding was expended, organizations like Brown County Schools, Brown County Community Foundation, the Community Partnership, and others. Along with many kind words of support from our families, thank you for making the CRC an important institution in our community. The CRC offers a variety of programs and services, beginning with adult education high school equivalency classes, Monday through Thursday, 1 to 4.30. If you or someone you know needs a high school equivalency or basic skills to get a better job, the CRC is the place join the over 550 students who have stepped up to the high school equivalency diplomas at the crc through this program we can get you enrolled with the work one employment office also located in the crc and qualify you for high demand job certification programs such as quickbooks accounting computer tech support ase auto mechanics cnc machine operators and more starting in ivy tech If you are thinking of college, Ivy Tech has a student affairs assistant that holds office hours and appointments for enrollment, registration, etc. at the CRC. We do Accuplacer testing and offer remedial help for students to test into credit classes at the highest level possible. These services are offered free of charge. The CRC also offers Ivy Tech classes right here in Brown County. Electrical classes. Every year, the CRC holds a series of classes designed to train students to get electrical licensing, wire their own home projects, or pass the master block electrician's exam. Many of the students are hired right out of the program. We also have electrician employers that pay tuition for their employees to attend. Many are hired as maintenance workers. The six classes begin in January and are offered two at a time and finish in December. Our instructor, David Mills, still holds the highest score from the Master Block Test, and his students try to top him every year. The program has produced 23 master electrical licenses and 15 local licenses. CompTIA A-Plus Computer Support Specialist Certification. This class teaches the fundamentals of becoming a computer tech support. It is taught by one of our former students, Nick Nungester, another Brown County resident. This is a very intense class and is the equivalent of taking two associate degree level courses at Ivy Tech. In fact, if you pass both exams, you can receive college credit for them. The class lasts 13 weeks plus the exam. This is a foundation-level certification that leads to Network and Security Plus certifications. Obviously, this is a high-demand field, and our students are in high demand. Nick works locally for MS Fiber, an IT company based in Brown County. QuickBooks for Small Business Many small businesses in Brown County use QuickBooks software for their accounting. This class familiarizes the students with the basic knowledge of QuickBooks for the purposes they need. If a person is seeking employment using QuickBooks, the CRC can also provide training for a QuickBooks certification. Solar Energy Classes The CRC offers two classes in photovoltaic solar power through the Midwest Renewable Energy Association. One is a one-day introduction to basic photovoltaics, PV101, which is the prerequisite for a two-day site assessor training. At the end of the three days of training, students will be able to identify and measure the best location for solar panels on a site, determine the size a system would need to be, and based on market values, approximate cost of the system. The scope of students that come to these trainings are homeowners that want to explore putting in a system, people seeking employment skills in the field, and electrical utility companies that need training for their employees. The next round of classes will be May 20th through the 22nd. The CRC has also offered music, art, and publishing courses. So if you have suggestions of classes you would like to take or teach yourself, give us a call at 988-5880, or find us on the web at the Brown County School website. If you would like to see the CRC continue its role in the community, please support the school referendum on May 3rd. For information on that, go to taxpayersforbrowncountyschools.com. Thank you, and join us at the CRC located at 246 East Main Street in Nashville or call us at 988-5880. Thank you.
8: This is My Brown County with Jeff Tryon, The more I thought about what really makes Brown County, Brown County, the more I began to realize how we each have our own particular Brown County. In a way, Brown County is what we each bring to it, what we find there for our own, what we each make of it. No one else sees it probably in the same exact way that I do, that's what makes it my Brown County. Local newspaper. I know that newspapers are a thing of the past, that only curmudgeons, washed-up refugee newspaper men, and other such ink-stained wretches give half a fig about the dead tree media. But I wonder if we could pause for a moment here in the twilight of the Gutenberg era to say a word or two about our local newspaper. I mean that sardonically, of course, because our local newspaper has recently once again been sold down the river as one huge corporation gobbles up another in the great death dance of capitalism which can seemingly only end with one huge mega corporation that literally owns everything including all options on the future. Of course it's not the first time the local paper has been sold nor even the first time it has been run by people living elsewhere than in Brown County. Brown County has a rich and colorful journalistic history reaching back to the year 1845 when the Nashville Spy began operation as the county's first newspaper. Much of that newspaper history is recorded in a 1974 booklet called A Century of Service, A Brief History of the Newspapers of Brown County, Indiana by Bob Kramer who labored many years at the Brown County Democrat in the late 20th century. The spy was succeeded by the Hickory Wythe, a paper founded in 1856 by that pillar of early Brown County, James Hester and four others. Hester was the county's first judge and represented the county in the state legislature. Along with many other ventures, he served as editor of the Democratic paper. Sometime around 1856, the Hickory Wythe was purchased by the United Brethren, a group which included such Brown County pioneer luminaries as William Taggart and Jesse Hamlin, and renamed the Evangelical Republican. In 1861, the editor, Jesse Brandon, bought the paper outright, renamed it the Nashville Union, and switched its politics back to Democratic, then predominant in the county. Although the Republicans won the White House behind Honest Abe Lincoln, more than twice as many Brown Countyans voted Democratic as voted Republican in that election. The Nashville Union did fairly well during those war-torn years through 1866 when Brandon died. Three newspapers followed the Union in the three years after his death, each failing after a few weeks or months. The Nashville Star, the Nashville Democrat, and the Index, all Democratic Party backers. Finally, after 24 years of having a local paper printed in Nashville, for a year and three months, no newspaper was published in Brown County. Then, in July of 1870, a paper called The Jacksonian was founded by a Mr. Yates who sold out a few months later to his partner, Captain George W. Allison. Captain Allison had previously been connected to newspaper work in Columbus, according to Frank Hohenberger. In what capacity, he doesn't say, but he records that Allison had a brother, brother brother-in-law, three sons, three nephews, and four grandsons in the newspaper business. A real newspaper family. That Jacksonian was a four-page broadsheet with five columns to the page, which usually had about eight columns of advertising. However, when the legal advertising came in, that could swell to as much as three full pages as it did when the delinquent tax list was published in January of 1875, according to Hohenberger's Down in the Hills of Brown. Early in 1883, Allison merged the Jacksonian with a new paper that had been started only a short time earlier by William Waltman and Isaac Chaffin, and called the Brown County Democrat. The paper passed through two other owners before returning to the Allison family in 1885 when George Allison's son, Alonzo, bought it. Alonzo Allison lived to the ripe old age of 75 years. 65 of those spent in the newspaper business, having enjoyed a long and prosperous run with the Brown County Democrat. Alonzo's son, George A. Allison, worked at the paper in the early part of the 20th century and was in charge of the actual production of the paper. The paper was printed on a hand-operated Campbell Cylinder Press and a George Washington level bed press. All the type was set by hand, which means Each letter in the newspaper was located, picked up, and placed by hand in a tray. At some point, the newspaper office was on the second floor of the Masonic Building on Main Street, where old photos reveal the printed sheets would sometimes be hung up to dry on lines like the Week's Washing. The old G. Washington Press was in use at the Democrat as a proof press up into the 1950s. This era of the newspaper was chronicled in photos by Frank Hohenberger and by artists such as Gustav Baumann, who created a block print of the newspaper being produced by hand on the old equipment. Alonzo died in 1926 and the paper was run by son John and daughter Jenny E. Allison until 1928 when it was bought by John F. Bond, a local man prominent in business and religious circles. Three years later, the Democrat was sold to Elmer Rader, an experienced newspaper man who had been publishing a paper in Spencer County. Rader modernized, installing the first electric-powered linotype and cylinder press in the paper's history. Rader published the paper for 18 years, selling it in 1950 to two Chicago sisters, Mrs. Eleanor Keyes and Mrs. Jean Ellis Usher. In 1952, they sold the paper to Robert Wyatt, a mover and shaker in Indiana politics, as executive director of the powerful Indiana State Teachers Association for 38 years. His wife, Margaret Wyatt, who had served in the state legislature from 1946 to 1950, was the publisher and editor over the next 18 years, spanning the 1960s, a time of enormous changes in Brown County. In 1970, the Democrat was purchased by Bruce Gregory Greg Temple, a third-generation journalist who began his career as a carrier for the old Herald Telephone in Bloomington, where his father was the city editor. Temple's resume included writing, editing, and management at the Indianapolis News, the Hammond Times, the Bloomington Tribune, and the Courier Journal and Louisville Times. Temple brought a modern look and focus to the paper, which won many awards and was twice named the Hoosier State Press Association's best weekly newspaper. The Democrat also was cited regularly for excellence by the National Newspaper Association during Temple's tenure. Temple went to great lengths to reintroduce Brown County's history and culture to a new generation, reprinting Carl Wilson's poems of country life, jokes and jingles from curly shingles, and regularly running Frank Hohenberger's photos on the front page. Temple sold the publication in the spring of 2002 to Home News Enterprises, an Indiana publishing conglomerate that grew out of the Columbus Republican newspaper, founded in Columbus in 1872 by Isaac T. Brown. The Republican stayed in the Brown family for the next 143 years, morphing from a weekly into a daily in 1877 and somewhere along the line, shortening its name from the Republican to the Columbus Republic. In 1998, Jeffrey Brown became the fifth generation active in the management of home news, which had grown to include the Franklin Daily Journal, the Seymour Tribune, The Edinburgh Courier, The Greenfield Daily Reporter, The Pendleton Times Post, The fortville McCordsville Reporter, and The New Palestine Reporter. Late in 2015, the Brown family announced they had sold the home news enterprise holdings to a Texas media company, AIM Media Texas LLC, which operates more than a dozen papers in the Rio Grande Valley. Said AIM Media Chairman and CEO Jeremy Halbrick, These are important, impactful, and attractive businesses located in an extraordinary and unique group of towns in southern Indiana. Group of towns? Sure, because there's basically no difference between Brown County and Columbus or Franklin or Pendleton or Greenfield. Pretty much the same thing. I'll bet you five bucks he never set foot in Brown County. And I'll bet you another five bucks he never will. When they were deciding where to build the new jail back in the late 90s, one of the public meetings they held to get input from the community, Brown County business magnate Andy Rogers stood up and said, while he understood that a new jail was needed, he wished they wouldn't move it away from the courthouse downtown. He said, with everything you move out of town, you make Nashville a little less of a real town and a little more like Williamsburg or Gatlinburg. Democrat lost me when they moved out of the old building down on Van Buren Street, where the paper had always been located since way before I was born. To them, it was just another piece of real estate and they probably looked to make a few bucks on the deal. Thus is our history and culture subsumed. What's the difference if the newspapers owned by a corporation in Texas or one in Bartholomew County or owned by an individual who actually resides here? To me, there's a big difference. A corporation is a money-making entity, and by definition, it has a legal and fiduciary obligation to do just one thing, make money for its shareholders. A person has a point of view and the ability to make a decision that goes against the grain of conventional wisdom or even popular opinion. A person who lives in and has a stake in a community helps to support and build that community, even at their own expense. A person can have whimsy, quirks, a sense of humor, a sense of history, just plain common sense. Corporations, not so much. My question is, how well can a Texas company do at those fundamental obligations to a community that should fall to a local newspaper? How committed are they to doing the things we need done and saying the things that need to be said in our local newspaper? Part of the function and responsibility of a newspaper is to bear the institutional memory of a place, to recall and care about past events that relate to things that happen today. A newspaper should have a sense of place, of what it means to be a resident of the locality of which they speak. Of course, nobody knows the answer to that one. What does it mean to be a resident of the locality of which the Brown County Democrat, now owned by some Texas publishing conglomerate, speaks? You know how it is. You have your Brown County and I have mine. In my Brown County, it is a sad day for newspapers in a county with such a rich and vibrant journalistic history. In any case, probably doesn't matter. I guess newspapers are going the way of the Buggy Whip and the local soda fountain. All just charming memories of a time that has passed us by. I suppose someday soon, we'll look back at the newspaper in the same way we now see the old log jail. Just a memento of earlier times, now long gone.
3: Now we pause for station identification.
1: Support for WFHB and the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org.
3: In our final segment, we begin with this month's For a Song with Carrie Ray. Rick Fettig shares his poem about being one with nature. And we also have an essay from Dave Seastrom. Plus, we will close with another tune from John Whitcomb called Lullaby. And we also have a poem by Carol Marks.
0: mother was born and raised on the Gulf Coast of Florida. We'd visit family there often when I was a child. We'd be sitting, just mama and I, with our butts in the sand and our toes in the sea, and I would ask her in sheer disbelief why she would ever leave this for Indiana. The glib version of her response was always that love will take you many places. See, she fell in love with one of them Indiana boys on them Indiana Nights. But as I got older, I pressed her for a more complete answer. The seasons, she said. I just love the changing of the seasons here. The first time I drove the back roads of Park County in October, I was hooked. Park County's where I'm from originally. I suppose the similarities between the rolling hills and hollers of my girlhood home are part of why I love so much about this place. I'm Carrie Ray, coming to you from my Brown County home with another installment of Forest Song. And my mother is, of course, right. Fall is undeniably beautiful here. Just ask the tens of thousands of tourists who descend upon our little village every year. But there's something about the transition from winter to spring that I find positively mesmerizing. I think it's first the promise and then the spectacle of the rebirth of that which was all but dead. And it seems always to be just in time. It's that first morning after the first day that offers just the right ratio of rain and sunshine when it seems that the forest out of my windows has gone from gray to green overnight. When what was brittle and weathered is suddenly soft and lush. The tree branches all at once have the blush of buds. The crocus boldly send up their periscope of green from the soggy soil. The moss on the path down to the lake, which lie dry and brown all winter, is once again a tender carpet beneath my feet. The songbirds and the woodpeckers start to sing and tap the soothing symphony that is my alarm clock. And the peepers tell me when it's time to stop fishing and head to the house unless of course I'm catching, then I fish until I can no longer see to thread-tip it through the eye of my little nymph." In a recent forest song, we talked about the importance of being willing to let go, or figuratively kill off song ideas or parts that don't serve the song as a whole. But we also talked about filing those ideas away in a graveyard of sorts. I personally have a written and an audio version made from quick recordings into my smartphone memo recording app. Well, as important as it is to collect the fallen and fragmented, it is equally as important to know when it might be time to follow the example set by springtime in Indiana and try your hand at a little resurrection. That growing collection of phrases, word associations, ideas, verses, choruses, and tags is a very valuable toolbox for the savvy songwriter. Struggling to channel new ideas? Farm the graveyard. Grasping for compelling imagery? Farm the graveyard. Stuck on a song? Farm the graveyard. Writer's block? Well, you get the idea. Remember, many of these little tidbits were buried there because you were once in love with them. And while I'm not normally a proponent of looking back or of zombie romance, I can tell you from experience that the undead versions can sometimes be even more lovable than the originals. So put a spade in your hand and your heart in a hopeful place, and then start digging. I'm Carrie Ray, wishing you Godspeed and hoping you'll join me next time on Forest Song. If you have ideas, questions, or topics you would like to have covered on For a Song, please send them along. You can reach me via the contact page of my website, cariray.com. That's C-A-R-I-R-A-Y ycom Thanks for listening.
4: A tree, by any other name, is still a tree. But a tree is not me. A tree grows very, very tall, and its limbs reach out, and from each side of a road creates a canopy that one can drive through, like driving through a covered bridge. My limbs only reach out about six feet, long enough to lend a helping hand, or hug a friend, companion, or loved one, and to hug my kids. A tree shares its roots with its neighbor contributing life and nourishment in good times and in times of ailment and trouble. A tree creates fresh air, lumber, and firewood. A tree creates homes and underbrush for critters, birds, and bugs. As I maintain a home and utility for my family and pets, you've got your oak, your pine, cedar, and poplar, and there's always locusts, which will outlast you as a fence post. A tree by any other name is still a tree. But a tree is me, my breath, my warmth, my home, and my earth and life. It is the earth. It is coexistent. It is one blue ball as seen from outer space.
1: It is the place in which we live. I've been thinking about making a living in tough times and hard locations. Brown County is traditionally a tough place to make money. I've often talked to elders who remind us that there was a time, not so long ago, when they didn't have any money. Everything they had was made by hand or traded for. Trading for things is a lot different than buying them. It's an individual act that requires complete agreement between the two parties. Unlike a traditional transaction involving dollars. The relative value of something traded has to be perceived by both parties as being of equal value. Most of us didn't grow up as traders. In our culture, we're taught to pay the ticket price without haggling. This lack of experience is a real disadvantage when you're dealing with a seasoned trader. I remember trading an ancient two-bottom plow for a dead washing machine and some old chickens that weren't laying. Old Danny must have seen me coming because he smiled from ear to ear when I shook his hand on the deal. I asked if the washer worked and he said, it did the last time we used it. This is where being trusting isn't always the best trait in a human being. The wife wasn't happy with me and I was forbidden to conduct any more trading. That didn't stop me though. We had some goats that needed freshening and we had a young buck that didn't know what to do. I talked a friend into trading one of his mature bucks for the one that we had. The only problem was that my pickup was dead. So I decided to move this buck in my four-door 1965 Plymouth Valiant. I drove over to Goat Hill and turned my little buck loose in the herd. Jack's buck had huge horns and weighed about 200 pounds. The task at hand was figuring out how to get this buck into the back seat of my car. We decided to open both back doors and pour some feed on the seat. The plan was to close the doors when the right buck made his appearance. We thought this was a pretty good idea until we realized that every one of his 30 or so does and all of his bucks had to take their turn before the goat that we were interested in felt relaxed enough to take his. It seemed like a long time and a whole lot of goats grazing in the back seat before the buck I wanted decided to try some feed. He was tentative at first and he had to stick his big horns into the car one at a time so his head would fit. Finally, when he had both horns in the car, I ran around to the other side and slammed the door shut while my friend Jack shoved him into the car and closed the door behind him our moment of triumph was short-lived as the buck began to go crazy when he realized that he was trapped the car jumped and shook as he tore out the headliner and battered the back of the front seat with his horns we decided it would be best if we let him calm down a little before i tried to drive him anywhere after a while he settled down and i carefully slipped into the front seat immediately the buck slammed the side of my head with his horn I also became aware of the horrible smell coming from my passenger. In response, I slid down until my head was flush with the back of the seat. In that position, I could barely see over the dash to drive, but I was safe from further head bashing. When I started to drive, the buck decided to sit on the back seat with his front legs on the floor and stuck his head into the front seat. Because I was hunkered down, the only one you could see in the car was this buck. I wasn't sure how local law enforcement would feel about this. So I snuck through town, driving on every back road that I knew. I lucked out and arrived at home safely. It was then that I started thinking about how I was going to move this guy into his pen. My wife was fitting a wedding dress for a customer in the house. And I asked this gal's fiancé if he would help me move a goat. I could see in his eyes that he thought I must be lame because... Goats aren't all that big. I pulled the car up right next to the open barn door and opened the car door expecting him to rush out. But by this time, he wasn't going anywhere. We reached in the back seat and each of us took a horn and started wrestling. Eventually, we pulled him out of the car and moved him into his pen where he immediately showed his interest in the doze by urinating all over himself. Now I knew why he smelled so bad. The car was never the same. And no matter how many times I washed it out, the stink remained. And I ended up selling it to a fellow who needed it for the parts. So it all worked out. This spring, we're airing our show a couple of days after the WFHB fun drive. But there's still plenty of time to help keep the station you love on the air by contributing some money. The station needs to pay its bills just like everybody else. And your pledge is how we do it. You could think of it as trading some of your dollars for the shows you enjoy. And best of all, you don't have to ruin your car to do it. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time.
5: This is a a song I wrote to commemorate the birth of my first grandchild, Arabelle Lily Burton, and it's called uh, Arabelle's Lullaby.
0: My name is Carol Marks and this poem is called Reverend Massey Ferguson. The Reverend Massey Ferguson was over six feet tall and had sandy hair. His congregation west of Remington had 73 members. The parsonage on Union Chapel Road was painted pale green. In the choir loft of the church there were dead flies on the white sill. The toys in the nursery were all made of clean unpainted wood and the basement smelled of coffee and Spick and Span.
2: This is Pam Rader with a little plug for our venture here. Every Tuesday night in the Historical Society's new building in downtown Nashville, our crew is hard at work having fun taping segments of the Brown County Hour. Community Radio WFHB has made all this possible for us. And we can bring you interesting interviews with local artists, musicians, who often play privately for us, writers, social workers, local activists, and especially the unique characters that make up the rich fabric of our wonderful community. None of this would have been possible without WFHB's help in training and especially in airing our shows. Come to think of it, we might be the only small local town or county with its own separate show on a community radio station, possibly in the whole country. But then we're not really separate. We are part of a large family of listeners, supporters, and volunteers who keep the station on the air year-round. I love this alternative model to the corporate multinational which I call too big, will fail, and I love being part of the production crew. I hope all you listeners of the Brown County Hour feel as strongly about this show and station as I do. Won't you be part of the extended family by pledging what you can give? I have. The official fun drive may be over, but it's not too late, To show your support for our show and the station, just log on to wfhb.org and press the donate button. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to episode 49 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m.
0: The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse bunch of folks who value people of all kinds.
1: This show was produced by Jeff Foster,
2: Pam Rader,
1: Rick Fettig
2: Vera Grubbs Carrie Ray
1: and Dave Seastrup We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. listening to the Brown County Hour.
0: Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana.
1: Celebrating the
4: arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community.
0: Visit
2: us online at browncountyhour.com.
1: The Brown County Hour is
8: a production of WFHB.
3: Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana.
8: Take me back,
7: back to my old Brown County home.